My guest today is Professor Joel Ohor, who is the president of ESMT Berlin. His research interests are in the areas of corporate finance, corporate governance, and financial intermediation. Welcome, Joel. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers. I found that uh, really interesting. Uh, do politically connected boards affect firm value? You say this article explores whether political connections are important in the United States. The article uses an original hand-collected data set on the political connections of board members of S&P 500 companies to sort companies into those connected to the Republican Party and those connected to the Democratic Party. Uh, the analysis shows a positive abnormal stock return following the announcement of the nomination of a politically connected individual to the board. Yeah, so this is uh, <laughs> uh, very intuitive. I guess this is a paper from 2009. Uh, things have probably gotten more robust in this, in this metric. Uh, in the US, as you know, we increasingly have nobody in the middle. We have blue shirt wearing Democrats and red shirt wearing Republicans. They don't seem to like each other that much. Uh, so it's a very divided uh, country. Um, but I, I, I guess the, uh, the observation here is that any connection to uh, a party in power, uh, I want to understand this. So in the US, we have the Congress, the Senate, and the president. Uh, oftentimes, they are from different parties. And so, so there, there are two questions, right? One is sort of anybody connected generally in the political arena, uh, how, how, do, how does that affect firm value? And then if somebody's nominated um, from a party that's in power, how does that affect firm value, right? Right, um, so the, the main question uh, we wanted to answer uh, by starting this research project is, uh, whether political corrections can create value, even for U.S. companies. So there was evidence before uh, for countries such as Indonesia, for Brazil, uh, but one could argue that uh, the legal rules in the U.S. are much stronger than, than, in, those, than in these countries. So uh, therefore, uh, it, it was of our interest to see whether in a country which has very strong financial markets, which also has very strong financial oversight of markets, uh, which also has over, overall a very strong legal system, uh, you would still see uh, these reactions. And uh, so, so therefore, we uh, classified uh, companies based on their board of directors into those leaning towards Democrats and those leaning towards Republicans. So this basically, you could say, was challenge number one, um, how to classify a company as being politically connected or not. And the second challenge is then then how to measure it. And uh, we used, as you said, uh, two types of events. One was uh, what happens at a point of time when a politically connected director is added to a company. And the second one that is maybe even the more intuitive one is what happens after um, a highly contested um, election? And we used, uh, for example, the presidential election in, in 2000, where it remained unclear for actually a couple of weeks who, which party actually would win the election. And we found uh, then uh, that with each step that made it more likely for the Democrats or finally for the Republicans to win um, the election, that also the uh, stock price reactions for the Democrat or um, Republican um, companies uh, became positive or negative dependent on, on their connections. So therefore, 
uh, it is um, important to find an event and it was important to find an event um, of which there was really a news uh, coming out, a new information coming out with uh, the uncertainty regarding the outcome of the election going down. And thus, uh, for this event uh, to become, um, you could say, the crucial point for our investigation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, these are large companies, this is S&P 500 companies, and an abnormal stock return would imply that we are talking about very large amounts of money, hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars, right? Uh, this is right. Uh, it, it obviously depends. Um, and there's also variation um, across these companies, uh, what it would mean for them. Uh, but these are definitely significant um, amounts of money that are related to that, um, which uh, obviously it's something we can discuss later, uh, led us to um, the second question, uh, where does this come from? And uh, obviously I'm happy to, to, um, to, uh, yeah, to, to go into yeah. this in more detail to come on. And so um, I don't know if this is in the data. So this is sort of some sort of an event study, right? So, so so you look at you know when something happens, what what the expectation was, what the normal returns are. But uh, over time, does it normalize back, or is this is this sort of a permanent change in firm value? So um, obviously, there's um, a lot that is uh, happening after the election, uh, lots of changes affecting um, uh, the companies. Uh, there are also papers uh, that look into uh, more long-term returns. Here we concentrate just on um, the short-term reaction, given uh, that uh, in order to take a more long-term view, uh, we would have to take into account many other um, events along the way. So uh, therefore, um, it is really um, an event that just looks at short-term reactions uh, to the announcements of the election results. And the board's composition, so uh, one person politically connected as opposed to two people, three people, uh, is, is there a difference there? Um, not really. Um, the, uh, the main important, the most important part is really for a company uh, to be connected and to be connected to the right party. So this means uh, to the party um, in power. Uh, what is obvious, though, is um, and becomes evident from the data that companies that are most highly dependent on government procurement contracts, they actually tend to have um, connections to both political parties. So um, it seems to be um, very important to these to those companies that generate a major fraction of their revenues from government procurement contracts that they are um, need to insure themselves against whatever the outcome of an election might be, and thus to be hatched against um, either outcome. Yeah, so, so you have another paper on that, uh, politically connected boards of directors and the allocation of procurement contracts, as you mentioned. And you see the article analyzes whether political connections of the board of directors of publicly traded companies in the US affect the allocation of government procurement contracts. So these, I, I suspect these are like defense, uh, space, things like that, right? Big, big contracts. Right, that's exactly right. So we see uh, in particular in the defense industry, um, that procurement contracts play a major role for uh, those companies that actually produce these goods. And um, this is <clears throat> just one way in which we envisioned at the point of time we finished the first paper, um, these stock price reactions could come from. You could in, th in principle think of many ways in which politically connected companies can benefit uh, from politicians. 
when it comes to regulation in various parts, uh, when it comes to, um, and this has been found for, for other countries, when it comes to, for example, uh, government loans uh, from um, the likelihood of being bailed out um, in a crisis, uh, also when it comes to thinking about import-export uh, tariffs, uh, whether there are exemptions that can be used uh, for yourself, for your competitors, and uh, we thought of um, government procurement contracts as a really clean example, um, given that they are significant. These are multi-billion um, dollar contracts that some companies uh, generate and receive. And uh, thus to see a change in um, the contracts and the volume of the contracts would, be, would have immediate impact on the cash flows of the companies. And in that sense, it would be a very clean example of what changing political relationships vis-a-vis -vis, um, the um, governing party uh, could actually result in. Yeah, so this is uh, clearly not a meritocracy. <laughs> and and it's, it's a common practice uh, in the US, as you know, uh, large companies uh, contribute to both parties equally. Uh, and so this is sort of a hedge. Um, you know, they, they have, they can go back and, and influence, uh, if influence is the right word, uh, on policy, on contracts, e e either case, uh, either party gets in, if they contribute to both of them equally, that is a, that's a good situation. And I guess the board composition in that sense also, right, uh, perhaps the directors are coming from both Democratic and Republic, Republican connected um, individuals. That's right. Um, we actually uh, we look at both uh, components because there are obviously also different ways in which uh, you can measure uh, political connections. Uh, the donations we looked at, uh, but as you uh, just said, donations seem to be much more fluid than uh, board connections. This has to do with the fact that uh, one election campaign or one election term, you can donate to the one party, in another one you can um, donate to another one. Um, and uh, what we s seem to sense from the data is that uh, there is um, a strong tendency also to follow uh, who is most likely going to be the, be the winner in the election. So therefore, um, nominating a connected board member to your company is actually a much more powerful signal. It's also much more, you could say, enduring um, signal, given that you can't change it so easily. And thus, uh, we concentrate more um, on the board connections as um, the level of political connectedness than, than the donations. Yeah, so I want to get, I want to take a bit of a detour and get your perspective on this. So, um, scale-based advantages appear to be increasing in every industry. For example, I thought six or seven companies command maybe 30% of S&P 500 capitalization today in the US. Um, so when companies get really big, they have a lot of advantages, obviously, uh, from an operations perspective, you know, very obvious advantages, but also patenting. Um, they have thousands of lawyers on staff that you know, continuously manufacture patents or get around existing patents. And this appears to be another scale advantage here, right? They can go out and get, you know, the, the best connected uh, individuals uh, on, on the board or, or, or in their exec committees and so on. Uh, do you see that as, uh, that as an issue? Uh, does this reduce competition, more generally speaking? 
Um, it certainly raises uh, serious questions about competition, uh, given that uh, there is uh, not an overly abundant supply of those politicians who can help uh, the companies. So there's, if you will, it's it's an asset for which there's also competition um, among companies. And uh, what we find in our data, for example, is that the first nomination of a politically connected individual uh, shows or exhibits uh, much more significant stock price returns than, say, the second or the third um, appointment of the same individual. So this means um, there's a certain novelty um, that comes into play and a certain novelty that uh, really makes a difference in the stock price reaction. So this means individuals uh, and thus also companies will choose very carefully which uh, company, which individual should get together. And thus uh, it could be the most highly capitalized companies, um, those that have also most to lose uh, to secure um, also the most um, say, talented um, and most influential politicians on their side, uh, which might be much more difficult uh, to um, receive for a smaller companies. So in that sense, this is certainly something that could add to the, the tendency you just described. Yeah, it's sort of a bidding uh, process for the assets. And you know, it, it seems like uh, the marginal benefit uh, derived by the company declines as, as it gets more and more of these types of people. So. Yeah, you know, if there are two people at dinner making a deal, uh, but there are three people or four people, doesn't appear to have a big impact on the outcome. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Um, and uh, it's in that sense uh, the novelty um, of uh, of a person or the novelty of the uh, exposure, the context a person brings uh, to the table is important. Uh, you could say that uh, it it is also maybe a question of trust and. Um, yeah, trust building that a former politician has. So if the former politician uh, comes to the table first uh, to bring a, bring forward one item that is relevant to a company, then um, this person may still enjoy a higher reputation, a higher level of trust than coming to the table the second time with another com uh, another company and maybe a another topic. So therefore, this this novelty and the impact of this uh, seems to be relevant and of material value. Yeah, I was wondering, George, you know, so the even studies are sometimes done uh, to look at insider trading, other other sort of things. Um, from a policy perspective, if we if you're seeing this in the data very clearly, um, isn't this sort of a problem <laughs> from, from a legal uh, perspective? I mean, if, if the company is gaining hundred million dollars, I'm just making up a, a scenario by appointing a, a director who is politically connected, it clearly implies that there is, I mean, this is this is not really, uh, a, uh, isn't it a clear evidence that something bad is going on? Um, not obviously, um, it, it could be. However, however, it could be um, there for uh, completely innocuous reasons. Um, the reasons could also be not so innocuous. Um, and this is now um, the big challenge. Uh, and, and let me just uh, make maybe most cases. Um, the uh, reasons in which uh, this has to be watched very carefully is obviously if there, are, if there is corruption, bribery and other parts involved, uh, the dark channels of money. At the same time, um, it could be um, something in which companies uh, can benefit simply from the expertise uh, that um, a politician brings to the table and in which 
I think it would also be um, a good thing to have revolving doors uh, between, say, um, business and, and politics, in which there's, uh, say, mutual um, utilization of, of knowledge, of expertise. So therefore, um, it, it's very hard to find, um, say, an answer that uh, has, so to say, a one-size-fits-all. However, um, it raises very important questions for, first of all, transparency, so uh, that it's very clear what is happening, what someone did, and um, it could also uh, trigger, and, and this is what we see in many countries, uh, it could also trigger important reasons for uh, cooling down or cooling off periods in which uh, those who have a certain um, duty uh, are not allowed to go, um, say, to um, a company or another, another institution that could benefit right away from the inside uh, knowledge. So, um, or at least uh, there are certain rules which would allow, uh, would not allow for the transfer of knowledge, uh, say, if you are the defense minister and you right away join um, a defense company. So it might be different, say, if you are um, the defense minister and you go to a company in the agri agricultural sector or so, where it's less about specific knowledge, but rather maybe the broader expertise uh, and contacts. So I know that there are some constraints on lobbying. Um, for example, if, if you are a, you know, if you're in the Congress or the Senate, and you retired or uh, or just gotten out. There, there's there's a period of time you cannot really lobby uh, lobby the Congress and the Senate. Uh, do such constraints exist here for directors of companies? Uh, there are um, different types of constraints that uh, different countries have imposed uh, on um, on uh, former politicians. Uh, and this is always a matter of uh, also, say, recent events that may actually trigger new debates on whether this should be strengthened uh, and this should be uh, brought forward. Um, and uh, this is where, uh, say, the, the legal background is quite different also in, in different countries, uh, where you also have a debate. Uh, and I'd like to um, make maybe this point in comparison to the United States, where I did my research, and uh, Germany, where I live. Uh, so here in Germany, there's a lot of complaint about the lack of the revolving door between uh, business and politics. Um, and the argument here is often we would need more businessmen or women uh, to join politics, um, as well as we would need politicians to join business simply to learn from each other and uh, to actually uh, inspire uh, or instill new knowledge on both sides. And so therefore, uh, the um, the answer of whether it's good or bad is is very difficult in my view to answer. But uh, what we need are really definitely very clear rules. And um, as I said before, foremost we need uh, full transparency about what is happening, so that really um, everybody can make a judgment on this. Do you have some sort of a comparative measure between EU countries and the US, both in terms of uh, both in terms of this happening as well as sort of the legal framework or constraints ex uh, exist in this arena? Uh, this was not part of my uh, research. Um, um, at the same time, um, it is, uh, I mean, there's some elements that are important in this context. Uh, first is that the uh, United States capital market is a much uh, bigger and stronger one than the EU, EU capital market. Uh, and in particular, uh, we still in Europe have to uh, face the situation of a rather fragmented uh, capital market. So therefore, the gains um, here are often limited to rather national stock markets and not a really as strong and, and uh, wide uh, capital market as in the United States. So, so this is one. Uh, 
Second, um, even though uh, we have obviously different levels of, and you mentioned this before, different levels of political decision making, uh, this might actually be even more, uh, you could say, tricky in Europe, where you have decision making on the Euro European level, you have decision making in the on the national level, then um, similar to the United States, you have decision making on the federal level. Uh, so therefore, it might actually be even more important to target the right source uh, in uh, the, rather actually being more important than in the United States. So if I understand this correctly, that would you say the constraints that exist because of the uh, overall EU decision-making and country-based decision-making are quite different, would you say that the overall constraints that exist are higher in Europe in this type of a process? Uh, yes, I would, uh, I would argue um, that this is the case. Um, the, uh, and in, in particular, reflecting on, the, on what, I, what I said, uh, that we see, and, and there might be other reasons playing into this, but uh, for sure, um, seeing um, the uh, often made claim that we would need more of a revolving door than we currently see it, and, and where the US is actually taking as, as a positive example, despite all the challenges uh, that we discussed before. And the parliamentary system, and I'm thinking, you know, do you see a difference in UK or it, it looks approximately the same? Yeah, and there's, this is also um, a very important point, uh, given that we obviously uh, also look at different ways in which members of parliament make it uh, to the parliament. Uh, so this means if you have um, a clear uh, majority rule system where uh, you have uh, competitors in one um, jurisdictions, uh, jurisdiction uh, fighting against another um, candidate in the same jurisdiction, it's a very clear um, election of uh, who will win or will not win. In a um, system such as a German one, where you also have, in addition, you also have um, the so-called lists. So basically, um, members of parliament and candidates for membership in the parliament become part of the list. And then it depends on how much um, or how many votes a certain party receives. Then also the whole nomination process uh, follows different criteria and also the way in which support for individual candidates uh, will be amassed uh, will be um, different in, in the German system, say, than in the uh, UK or the US system. Yeah, I remember, you know, when I was growing up in India, when after the elections, you know, one party essentially takes over the entire government, <laughs> you know, sure. uh, and, and increasingly that's not the case in the US because there is, you know, a Senate and the Congress and the president all could come from different parties. So, so that system, at least on the surface, appears to be less problematic than a parliamentary system where the lower house, if it has good majority in the lower house, essentially going to make all the decisions uh, without, you know, without any sharing of power. Absolutely. And, and this is, uh, I think, a very um, interesting uh, research question in itself, uh, where I've just seen uh, new papers coming out that look at um, the uh, checks and balances that different political systems uh, have. Whether, for example, uh, you have a, a more diverse representation of different political interests in the political system, whether this can actually help economic efficiency. And uh, while it maybe might be too early to, uh, to see what exactly the outcome of these uh, research papers is, um, I think they are extremely um, inspiring and um, rewarding. I mean, it's very rewarding to, to follow up on this research. So to see um, whether checks and balance, balances, additional checks and balances 
actually, um, in fact, can increase economic efficiency because you may also argue, well, it's much better to have not have them because it's much easier to make decisions um, in this case. Um, but it goes, you could say, in a certain way back to the old um, literature, even um, in, say, Latin uh, Republican um, law uh, by Cicero, for example, where the question is, what is the best political, political system you can imagine? Is it one in which you can have um, a very strong uh, power that makes all the decisions, therefore to make quick and easy ones, but at the same time risking um, huge uh, disadvantages if things go wrong? And therefore the level of, um, when it just comes to economic outcomes, uh, to understand the uh, level of political diversity of uh, checks and balances there on economic outcomes is a very important one. Yeah, I'm a big fan of distributed decision making. You know, I have fantasies of direct democracy. Um, you know, with technology now, you know, can we move away from this political intermediaries who tend to get corrupt uh, or in some cases incompetent? Actually, a lot of these decisions are fairly technical in nature too, uh, that politicians are not really equipped to do. Um, and so, so do you do you see with you know existing technologies that are highly distributed? Everybody has access to the internet, and so on. Do you see over time uh, we can move toward more of a, a direct democracy system? That is certainly an option. So the technological um, advancements certainly make it much easier to go that way. At the same time, um, it requires also a very profound decision-making ability by those who are able to vote. And uh, I, I always look at this with some um, admiration in Switzerland, where we see um, that some of these stakes are up for general vote. And uh, what I see at the same time is that um, people, citizens, spend significant amounts of time to prepare themselves for such uh, cases, because then it's not longer um, possible to simply delegate decision-making and uh, getting informed to representatives, members of parliament, but you are really uh, in charge yourself. So be it, uh, would shall a new, um, say, um, swimming facility uh, be constructed in your neighborhood or not? Uh, because that certainly has a certain, um, and th this is certainly what econom economists would call trade-off. On the one hand, uh, you have the benefit of now going being able to swim very close to your home. At the same time, you must also understand that this may come with a cost. So for example, that uh, local taxation may be raised and this type of trade-off is really uh, what uh, people would then have to take into account. And um, I don't know much about this. How about the Scandinavian countries? Uh, so clearly there is a size issue here. So when you are less than 10 million in total population, you probably have more options around um, you know, structuring a, a system that's different from large uh, countries. Uh, do does uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, Finland, Sweden, uh, any of those have any different systems? Uh, so we haven't researched them, um, but uh, what we certainly see is that uh, here it also comes to into account how um, countries structure themselves. Um, and, and this is also actually maybe one of the uh, fundamental principles by which the European Union um, has been established. So um, when you, for example, uh, see that uh, by founding principle, it should be that whatever can be governed at the local level, it also should be governed at the local level. 
so uh, that only uh, questions of national and maybe also transnational importance when it comes to defense, for example, um, or, or the internal market, that they are then uh, governed at the national or the supranational um, level. So uh, you could say in that sense, um, the question of which decisions are given to which level is of crucial importance uh, as they would allude or um, they would go in the direction of where most competence is uh, coordinate or is, is, uh, is uh, existing to be able uh, to coordinate these decisions. Yeah, I mean, one complication, though, is that if, if states have different decisions or different systems uh, on large issues like healthcare, education and so on, um, it could create a bit of chaos, right? So I'm thinking if Illinois and Ohio have completely different healthcare systems and healthcare policies and so on, that could create, uh, create an issue too, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, this is a possibility. At the same time, um, when uh, you think of, uh, in, in, in Europe, this is often referred to as the subsidiarity principle. Uh, at the same time, if this uh, is in place, it also may raise a certain level of competition, which might be good. So given that no one knows or should know or can know um, everything about everything that may happen, so given that we live in a world with, you could say, incomplete knowledge, also incomplete contracts, so not knowing what is going to happen going forward, that uh, rather it should be a good idea to be able to experiment a little bit on certain parts, see how what the outcome is, and then maybe also learn from others who have done better, um, and also obviously learn from those who have done worse uh, to avoid those uh, steps they're taking. Yeah, uh, topically, you know, COVID-19, we have 50 different experiments going on in the U.S. in terms of how to counter <laughs> counteract COVID. Same here, um, same here. So, so I want to go into another paper that you have, Institutional Investors and Corporate Political Activism. Um, you said a landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court on Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission asserts for the first time that corporate, uh, corporations benefits from First Amendment protection regarding freedom of speech in the form of independent political, ex, uh, political expenditures, thus creating a new avenue for political activism. Um, so so you, you are saying here this is actually a good thing for companies to, to have this flexibility. Uh, well, we are first uh, uh, only documenting um, the huge increase of uh, political donations following this landmark decision. So uh, we see that uh, there is um, so much more money flowing into the political system uh, than before. Uh, and this seems to suggest that, first of all, um, those who give the money to the system, in fact, think that there is a value to be gained from uh, investing there. At the same time, uh, we also see right away from uh, basically from day one after the um, announcement of the decision by the, by the, federal, uh, by the Supreme Court, uh, you see also the criticism to start coming in. First one uh, being that now big business seems to dominate everything so that now big business may find it even easier to um, influence political decision making in their own um, interest. And at the same time, and this might be actually uh, the most su surprising part, is that also big institutional investor associations warn companies against uh, using this freedom because they are afraid of um, a lot of waste of money in this case. So that this is not really driven by, um, say, rational decision making, 
but rather that there's a lot of uh, waste um, of money. And that maybe go, may go back to an earlier paper, um, say 15 years ago, that looked at political donations um, or contributions and the stock returns of the companies. And there uh, you find, um, but this is a pure correlation, there's no, nothing about causality yet, the pure correlation between the well-being of a company as measured by its stock price and the amount of donations uh, these companies uh, um, provide to the political system. And now you can make basically most cases. You could say, on the one hand, if a company gives a lot of donations, then it's also going to be more successful. But you could also make exactly the counter argument. Only successful companies with a lot of money can even afford uh, to provide political donations. So therefore, um, the latter part is the one that is probably um, of a lot of concern to many institutional investors so that they basically try to avoid and actually try to penalize companies they invest into from uh, investing too much in the political process. Yeah, I also wondered in a system that is sort of very finely balanced, almost 50-50 between two parties, one could argue that the expected return on contributions are lower, right? I mean, you have that probabilistic outcome of who is going to be in power that is not necessarily very highly predictable. And so either you have to go in with a lot of contribution on either side, you know, just sort of hedge uh, both sides of that. Um, whereas, you know, in a, in a very dominant political party country like India, for example, you know, you can you can predict who is going to be in power uh, probably with fairly high level of accuracy that the returns uh, on that uh, donations probably is a lot higher, I would think. Yeah, um, and it's uh, I mean, this is why we also looked at different elections in our own research, uh, given um, that there were some uh, elections in which it was pretty clear who would win. Um, the uh, the outcomes uh, are pretty different from an election as the one that I mentioned in 2000, where uh, even after the election, it wasn't clear um, who won it. And uh, therefore, uh, these patterns, let's say, if, if you compare to the 92 or maybe in particular the 96 election, um, is, is quite different because you then also see, um, you could say, tactical behavior by, by companies. Companies that seem to have uh, donated much more to one party now, um, say, out of tradition or, say, political beliefs, now seem to also uh, go around uh, those companies, uh, those parties, uh, or th that party that, that seems to win um, most. So therefore, these are pretty um, balanced. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty, um, say, sophisticated way in which uh, companies do this. At the same time, uh, I think also the parties know that uh, a donation, as useful as it might be for a certain election, um, is not, um, say, a forward-making statement about real political connections a company may have. Right, right. So, so I want to go into uh, another paper that's a different topic. Um, do credit shocks affect labor demand, evidence for employment and wages during the financial crises? Um, you say we studied the impact of exogenous funding shocks to German savings banks during the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis. So we're talking about the, the 2008 crisis? That's right. On the labor decisions of 30,000 private and public firms in Germany, you said we find that firms with credit relationships with affected banks experience a significant decline in labor demand relative to firms with credit relationships with healthy banks. 
So labor demand meaning uh, they are they are hiring less people as opposed to other banks hiring more. Exactly. So um, labor demand meaning the demand by companies for um, workers for employees, um, and uh, this is specifically driven by the fact that also Germany, while it was in healthy economic conditions, was significantly affected by the financial crisis due to the fact that some banks, but not all banks, and this is actually the trick we use in our experiment, that some banks were heavily invested in the US subprime market. So therefore, when the US subprime market collapsed, some banks in Germany were affected um, by this uh, collapse of the subprime market, others were not, simply because they, they were not invested in the United States, or at least not to the same extent. And thus we can uh, now look at what happens to the credit relationships uh, of the affected banks versus the non-affected banks to their um, industrial corporate customers, and then see um, whether this lack of credit supply the affected banks provided also leads to then a lack of demand um, on the uh, company side for uh, in the in the labor market, and this is indeed what we find. So that uh, means uh, that a re uh, an event that started in the United States that at first place had nothing to do with the the German economy led uh, via this transmission mechanism to also um, a lower demand for um, German workers and and employees. And uh, this actually type of research. Uh, also has been shown in other contexts. So for example, it also has been shown in, in the other way around, um, US companies, US workers being affected by certain changes that um, had its origin or their origin in other parts of the world, be it in Japan or other parts of the world, um, and thus uh, showing, you could say, the global linkages that we have uh, for markets uh, to, to work together. Uh, so, but the industrial clients of these banks, uh, if they don't, let's say, you know, the the company was a client of the affected bank, uh, they could switch banks, couldn't they? Yeah, they could, um, and this is um, certainly um, something that mitigates uh, this this problem. So this means if they are also uh, if they also have relationships with a non-affected bank, uh, then this obviously um, is a very nice hedge for them uh, to get out. Uh, but in many of these cases, if there's only one bank um, that, that they have worked with, and maybe have worked with one bank for good reasons, because the bank um, has known them very well, um, they've understood, they've built a lot of information on this client, that uh, this effect then um, would have more severe effects on, on this company if it relies, uh, or if it, more or less if it has put all its eggs into one basket. Did the did the prices spread uh, again? Looking at Germany, uh, were there a lot of bankruptcies? Uh, uh, yeah, in the bank um, sector? right. Um, so the uh, economic, uh, sorry, the financial crisis had severe um, impact on Germany. So um, in particular, uh, in 2009, um, Germany saw the worst decline in economic activity since World War II. So it was um, a GDP decline of about five percent. And uh, that also led uh, to a massive problem in the German banking sector. So uh, we saw a number of uh, bankruptcies, but in particular, a very strong consolidation of still existing banks, where, say, weaker banks were acquired by not-so-weak banks um, in an effort to consolidate those weaker banks. Do you think this experience, this sort of a systemic shock, that spread across the world, 
in 2008. Um, do you think we learned sufficiently from that uh, to, to avoid it in the future? <laughs> So um, first of all, I would say, yes, uh, we learned a lot. Uh, so when you think of all the regulatory responses, political responses that came out of um, this crisis, then uh, we definitely can say uh, a lot has changed. Uh, the regulatory response reaches uh, and has reached financial institutions um, all over the world. Um, it was a very concerted effort by policymakers, politicians, central bankers, um, also um, fueled by academic insight that actually has led to a new um, oversight. Whether this will be sufficient for the next crisis is, is a question that remains um, open uh, because we simply can't foresee what the next crisis may look like. So, for example, in 2008, 2009, no one would have uh, foreseen, say, the pandemic crisis to be the next one that would uh, challenge uh, the banking, the financial system even though the problem here definitely did not come out of the financial system, but rather um, where the financial system needed to um, help stabilize uh, the effects that came due to the pandemic crisis. Yeah, so the, as the economies get more and more integrated, in some sense, you lose flexibility, right? So, you know, we, we saw a lot of supply chain disruptions and the shock can spread through the system really fast. Uh, because it's all very well integrated, very well connected. Yeah. Um, do you see that as a problem uh, for the future? Uh, yeah, it is certainly um, a big question at this point of time. So when we think of, uh, in particular, the global supply chains, the global supply chains were taken as um, taken for granted uh, for a long period of time. Companies actually, in terms of seeking more efficiency, tried to expand their supply chains even more on a global scale. And now we see a little bit of um, getting these supply chains back home. And uh, that certainly is at the loss of economic um, efficiency, uh, but it certainly also involves a certain um, insurance argument that you would like to be insured against the potential risks of um, such something like the pandemic crisis. And maybe relating it back to um, my, my earlier papers we discussed, also, maybe the political risks that may come with it. So um, in Europe, there's certainly a lot of debate on the so-called decoupling, that there might be a risk at some point that European companies would have, may have to decide between a Chinese-dominated part of the world and a US-dominated part of the world, in which uh, maybe two different production cycles, two different supply chains might need to be in place in order to deal with these different uh, political uh, and politically divided systems. Yeah, so my understanding is that the, the labor cost arbitrage was one of the sort of the, the, the driving force toward going abroad. Uh, but as robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, new technologies reduce the labor content of products, do, do you see things will get more and more localized? Um, what, what do you see from a trend perspective there? Yeah, that could be an argument. Um, at the same time, uh, we now also see uh, different types of, uh, say, globalized activities, which um, may lead or let's say, which may benefit less from um, arbitrage in prices, but rather um, might be driven by access to markets. So uh, this means uh, there are different trends uh, going on at the same time. 
which uh, may go in the one um, or the other direction. Um, for sure, I would say um, that, say, an unconditional belief in making supply chains more and more global, also product chains more and more global, has been um, definitely been um, reduced by what we've seen in the pandemic crisis. And we now see a certain readjustment of, of these processes and maybe also separation into, say, more globally and more, you could say, regionally oriented chains. So in conclusion, I want to sort of finish, uh, finish up with uh, the, the first topic that we were discussing. So do you see any sort of policy intervention to, um, you know, supposing these sort of connected boards and allocation of procurement contracts and so on uh, is reducing competition, may not be good for the economy, may not be good for medium-sized small companies. If that is true, do you see any sort of policy intervention you can put in place? Um, I would see this policy intervention in the most general sense uh, by uh, the um, antitrust authorities uh, to take on uh, their role more seriously. And we have seen this uh, from the debates in the United States. We also see it uh, from the debates here in Europe that uh, antitrust is probably um, again at the peak of public interest. So, um, and, and we see it, uh, even though, in my view, this is a misguided argument, but nonetheless, the argument is there, uh, that uh, the argument is made that even the current inflation might be driven by um, a lack of competition. But for sure, um, we see that um, argument also, I mean, also documented by acad academic evidence that um, they, for example, um, the margins uh, may change in certain industries uh, based on um, the lack of competition so that you see, say, takeovers uh, reducing the real competition in a given industry. Yeah, so the antitrust, you know, I don't know much about this, but in the U.S., um, because of the, you know, the, the, the lawyers, the, the legal power that these large companies can bring to the table, they can, they, they appear to be very successful in delaying any action um, that that com comes from. So, you know, even if you bring a case against them, it's 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 a uh, you know ten years, twenty years before <laughs> before anything is done. Uh, so I don't know if the existing laws are sufficiently robust to go after these types of issues. Uh, this is definitely a, a case to look at. Um, so whether say the deep pockets help you to overcome um, some of these uh, concerns, in particular, even if say fines uh, that you and I would feel could be significant, could be completely negligible for companies with um, huge levels of profits, where you basically say, even if I'm caught by um, antitrust authorities, it really doesn't matter too much. So therefore, um, this is why I think um, in the end, the public interest will trigger even more discussions on what antitrust stands for these days. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been a great job. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's been uh, really uh, fun and it's also been rewarding to be able to talk um, about the research in this format. Thank you so much. Thank you.